Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Road blockades have returned to Caledonia. Where do we go from here? The final U.S. presidential debate has taken place. Will it change anyone's opinion? The U.S. is pressing Canada for harder sanctions against China. Will we listen? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. The good news is the doctor said I can start putting weight on my broken leg. The bad news is my parents already have had a list of chores for me to do. No sympathy during a pandemic. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Yeah. There you go. I got something on my boot. Well, I got my boot here. I don't know. I get that off my boot. I got... Is that from the horse or the dog? I got... <laughs> not sure. Uh, good afternoon. It... Oh, uh, apparently it's the dog. Uh, good afternoon. It is 12-11. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station. Keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. It is Friday. Ooh-wee. I think we need it right about now. Uh, you know, something about your home and being all alone on a Friday is way different than on a Monday. Uh, the life of seclusion. Feel free to jump into the fun and uh, lots to talk about today. And, of course, we will end it all with uh, the Reverend Jim Carrier and his message of hope as we head into another weekend. Beautiful weekend, too. Beautiful day today. All right. Uh, obviously, as you know, road blockades have returned after protesters and the OPP clashed in Caledonia. Uh, an injunction was put in place against the demonstrators yesterday. And, uh, you know, here we go again, way back when. We all remember uh, what it was like. Uh, Six uh, Six Nations demonstrators say hundreds of their people have gathered on, this was from last night, on the other side of the barricade to continue the occupation of what they say is unceded land. Spokesman, spokesperson, rather, Skylar Williams telling One Dish, One Mike podcast, uh, he's accusing the OPP of acts of aggression. You know, when I had to pull that uh, taser dart out of my brother's back earlier and, uh, you know, see uh, rubber bullets fired at, you know, where women are sitting around the fire. Like, this is absolutely ridiculous. And to sit here and say that, you know, this is violent on our part. Bull****. We never brought guns to anybody's front door. And so now we got a massive line of OPP standing over here and uh, a couple hundred uh, Six Nations community members standing on this side. And so this is just a, the same it over and over and over again and so every time we keep on saying this is a peaceful occupation of our territory and uh opp want to push and push and push uh courts want to keep on pushing all right let's bring in the mayor of haldeman ken hewitt ken thanks for taking the time i hope you're doing as well or as well as you can be uh considering the situation that you know all too well uh give us your thoughts on what's happening well, thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, Skyler paints quite an interesting picture. Uh, quite frankly, it's not really what's happening down here. And uh, unfortunately, mainstream re- media doesn't seem to quite get the whole picture. And uh, certainly, uh, you know, the idea or the, the word peaceful has uh, been used uh, all too often. And uh, I can certainly tell you that it's not peaceful, it never has been. And what happened yesterday was, uh, uh, was not the OPP provoking uh, these protesters. It was the protesters uh, throwing rocks, uh, damaging vehicles, throwing feces at uh, officers and provoking them. And so it's, 
it's, a, it's unfortunate that's uh, not the story that gets out, but that's really what's happening. And uh, that being said, uh, what we have here, Scott, uh, you and I've talked many times, uh, is is a federal issue uh, that continues to just lag on and lag on. And frankly, whether they're blue or red, they have abdicated their duties uh, in resolving this issue. Have you heard from any government officials on this? I haven't heard from a federal uh, representative, uh, frankly, since I've been uh, the mayor uh, for the last 10 years uh, with respect to uh, this ongoing claim here in Haldeman County. And uh, that in itself is a, a bone of contention. But uh, no, we haven't. I have been in touch with the province. Uh, we have been in conversations. And the province has a role to play here as well. Uh, you know, they, you know, allowing uh, Douglas Creek Estates to stand as it is, is, is the springboard for this, uh, for this, you know, non-peaceful activity that continues to, uh, to cause issues for the community. Are you surprised considering the Prime Minister's position, and I know you don't want to get uh, political here uh, as far as which side or the other um, uh, politically, but are you surprised considering all the talk of truth and reconciliation that they haven't been more uh, uh, accommodating here, that they haven't done more federally to try to resolve this? I mean, again, we can remember back to Douglas Creek Estates, and it's the same issues here. So. Uh, are you surprised they haven't had some sort of liaison or, or somebody that, that, that's at least monitoring or, or, or doing some sort of negotiation here? I, I am surprised uh, that there hasn't been more act, activity from the federal government uh, on the ground. I'm, I'm also, you know, disappointed that uh, you know Six Nations in itself has not been able to come together and and and, and articulate a way to govern uh, themselves uh, where they can feel represented and, and and at these types of negotiations. And that's another issue. And and the bigger issue, Scott, that no one seems to be asking is, where's the integrity behind our land title systems? If if there's no integrity behind the land title system, then what's the piece of paper that you own uh, or have that, that says you own that home? If, if I continue to hear from those from outside this community saying that we're all squatters, we've all stolen land across the country, well, none of them are handing their deeds over. And at the same time, how can we put any faith and confidence in this title system if this activity continues to happen in Haldeman and along the Grand River? What is the reaction in the community, both Indigenous and non, uh, throughout this? Uh, well, I've reached out to many on Six Nations that, uh, you know, I obviously still feel, um, you know, frustrated that the federal government has not uh, stepped up to the plate. Uh, but they do not uh, support the kind of activity that's happening on the streets uh, and in the communities. And uh, at the same time, I've, uh, you know, we're, we're looking for, for them to, you know, to, to stand you know, and take a similar position as us that, uh, that you know, tearing up the streets, uh, you know, throwing, uh, you know, damaging vehicles, damaging infrastructure, that, that is, there's nothing peaceful about it. And, and it's not uh, the provocation of the, uh, of the OPP or the provocation of the residents in, in Haldeman or Caledonia. It's simply a handful of protesters that are acting outside of, um, outside of the jurisdiction of, I think, the people of Six Nations. Um, I'm trying to cut to the chase here, Ken, and, and do it as delicately as I can. But from where I sit trying to watch this over the last 15 years unfold, 
um, there seems to be two major problems. Number one, uh, the lack of the federal government, whatever the, uh, you know, that is of the day, uh, to, to seriously sit down and get each and one of these, uh, land issues resolved individually and also a unified voice within the indigenous community. Uh, and as a result of that, the goalposts keep moving. Is that accurate? You've hit it right on. That's exactly what it is. It's it's an inability of the federal government to come to terms on on a position with respect to this claim, which, by the way, is not a land claim. It's it's a claim uh, with respect to funds, uh, and 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 that's the confusion that continues to exist. That it's not a land claim. These lands along here are are under the title system and have been for many many years, but largely is that unified voice that you speak of trying to get a unified voice on six nations has been uh, that's been you know uh, the issue that has that has undermined their efforts for for many many years and and this is a, and this is an issue between uh the elected ban officials and the hereditary uh, elders or chiefs within within uh, the indigenous community that's correct, and 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 even uh, you know there's other other factions as well, and 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 they you know it's 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 finding a, a way to come together, be unified, be open, be transparent, and be accountable, and and those those are large large obstacles to overcome. Um, where is the band chief on this? The elected band council on this. Well, they legally uh, have an agreement with uh, Foxgate Developments, and uh, they've accepted uh, monies, they've accepted lands in exchange for the uh, for that agreement, and uh, and and that agreement states that uh, that they would be fully supportive of uh, of the housing development and the process that uh, the house the, the developer took. Uh, you know, we're looking for uh, you know Six Nations Bank Council to you know to stand uh, you know similarly as us and and uh, admonish the uh, those that are on the streets uh, ripping roads up and and uh, and causing uh, damage and and hardship to uh, to the innocent people that uh, have really you know nothing to do with uh, what's happening on Six Nations or what's happening with our federal government. Um, I remember, I think, talking to you when this this stage of this started all up uh, with this specific piece of land. And I, I believe that that morning, the band chief's house had been set on fire. Is that accurate? And and where do, where is that discussion gone? Because obviously there is conflict within the community. How do we resolve that? Yeah, that's a, I think that was the same morning. You're right. And, and uh, it's an interesting one. I, I, I know there's been an investigation ongoing. I, I'm, I'm not sure if charges have been laid. Uh, that investigation is happening within the, uh, uh, the confines of Six Nations uh, Police. And uh, I haven't heard a report uh, or read anything on that, but uh, uh, it's, it's not being dealt with uh, by the OPP. So we're kind of left in the dark on that one. Is there anything um, fed the federal government can do as far as uniting various factions uh, within the indigenous community to to get some sort of uh, maybe not common ground, but certainly a, a common process here? Yeah, I, I think that the first step is is engaging uh, those on Six Nations and 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 putting a platform for them to voice their concerns and start start the dialogue there hasn't been any of that uh and and i think that's the first step 
and then from there, you know, working with those on Six Nations to to establish, you know, in terms of reference, and in, in which case these will be individuals that will represent the broader community of Six Nations. Uh, where do you see this going now? Where is this now? Well, it's a, it's we're in uh, you know a unique position. Uh, obviously, as mayor, uh, you know my duty is to you know to represent the community here in Haldeman County to to uh, you know to protect uh, as best we can. Obviously, the infrastructure and ensure that infrastructure is is accessible to the taxpaying public. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, as you know, as a politician, we have no ability to uh, to direct uh, police force or services. And uh, so we continue to, you know, push the OPP to ensure that uh, they're doing their job to protect the infrastructure as well as the safety of the public. Uh, and we we need to get our roads open. There's, there's no question about it. We We can't have the south side of Caledonia handcuffed as we do. Uh, for a non- long, ongoing period of time. And what is the situation at the site right now? Uh, well, there's, it's it's there's, it's quiet, I guess, if you will. Uh, but uh, you know, the access uh, to the southern part of uh, Caledonia to leave the community has been completely closed off. Uh, the roads uh, Mackenzie's been dug up. The road to Argyle Street's been dug up. The bypass of Highway 6 is closed. The CN rail line is closed. Uh, there's uh, a number of infrastructure uh, issues with respect to damages. Uh, there's a gas line that uh, is very close uh, uh, close by where they were digging up the road. That's a concern for, for many people. So uh, these are the things that we expect the OPP to take a much uh, more assertive position on. And up to date, we haven't seen that. Uh, I'm, I'm sure this is a question that I've asked you in the past, but uh, especially now with what's going on uh, in Caledonia, is there any chat with the federal government about can, can you put someone on this file? Like, obviously, the Caledonia file, I mean, there's lots of hot spots in the country. There's lots of places where there's these outstanding uh, issues. But this certainly, over the years, has been a hot spot. Is there any way there can... You know, the government should put somebody on this to, to just as an ongoing thing to to, to somehow resolve these issues is, and, and especially be present when flare ups like this happen. Well, it's, it's, <laughs> Scott, you'd think that, uh, you know, my position as a mayor, I'd be able to send an email or make a call and, 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 and have the, uh, you know, the respect from my fellow levels of government to respond. And frankly, uh, you know, we've reached out on numerous occasions, and yeah. uh, I have yet to get responses from any of those uh, cabinets. All right, Ken, you, what do you think the weekend's going to be like, Ken? Well, uh, I, I guess I normally would say it's great. It's going to be nice weather. Nice weather is not necessarily good for protests. And so, it, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, it's going to be a challenge for, for those living in, uh, in Caledonia for this weekend, as uh, it's going to be a challenge for those living in Six Nations. And hopefully, calmer heads will prevail and we can find a way to, uh, you know, to negotiate ourselves out of a position that doesn't involve confrontation. Ken Hewitt has been with us, Mayor of Haldeman. Ken, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Good luck this weekend. Oh, thank you, Scott, for having me. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'm going to play you some clips here. Uh, we'll save the Biden. Well, let's do the Trump one first, and then we'll uh, we'll play the Biden one uh, in the next segment in 15 minutes. Uh, this, of course, uh, excerpt of the uh, the debate last night, which was a lot different than uh, the one the initial one that everybody, of course, was talking about. Uh, here's uh, the, the uh, president during his opening remarks. We closed up the greatest economy in the world in order to fight this horrible disease that came from China. It's a worldwide pandemic. It's all over the world. You see the spikes in Europe and many other places right now. It will go away. And as I say, we're rounding the turn. We're rounding the corner. It's going away. All right, let's bring in Aaron Call. That's uh, courtesy of ABC, by the way. Let's bring in Aaron Call, director of debate at the University of Michigan and editor, co-author of Debating the Donald. He is with us now. Aaron, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, it's great to be back with you. So your thoughts on what happened last night is uh, the fact that uh, the president kept calm and cool. Does that make him the winner? Uh, not necessarily, but I definitely think it was a, a market improvement from Cleveland. And he listened to the public. They were dissatisfied with the first debate. They didn't like the constant interruptions and ad hominem attacks. The entire debate couldn't hear the information they needed. And ratings reflected that. They were down 13% compared to the first debate four years earlier. And so he did a course correction, and you know it, it definitely was a, an improved performance. The problem for him, being politically, is that he start he's very behind in the race right now, both in, in national polls and battleground polls. So he really needed not just a, a victory, but uh, a knockout, and I don't think that happened. Actually, most of the polls, credible scientific polls in the United States, thought that Biden still came out a little bit ahead, but. This could provide momentum. Uh, his campaign just said that they think they raised the most amount of money uh, in one day because of the debate performance. So clearly his base and supporters are happy. And, you know, it looks like there's some foreign policy news now between a new agreement between Israel and Sudan. And maybe this will provide some much needed, needed momentum for the last 11 days of the election. You talked uh, and used the term course correction between the first debate and this last debate that we saw last night for the president. Will that course correction continue through the rest of the campaign since it seemed to work for him last night? Uh, Will we see that moving forward in his rallies, et cetera? Yeah, I'd say it's unlikely Um, just because, yes, he's going to do a lot more rallies. He's going to be in Florida next. And, you know, that the type of audience at a a political rally, um, they they want a different message. You know, they want red meat and they want um, much more of the ad hominem and personal attacks. And so he will likely adjust his uh, message to what the audience wants. And so I would expect uh, that just to be a one and done uh, from last night in the different tone and tenor. And we'll likely go back to, you know, what you saw in the 60 Minutes interview with Leslie Stahl and the, um, you know, just kind of back and forth, which, you know, I guess, there's always a chance that maybe he could be more disciplined. Um, he was in 2016, in the last 11 days or so of that campaign. Um, the Hillary Clinton email investigation was reopened, and he kind of stayed off Twitter and just uh, focused on that. Um, but I don't know. Uh, it's a lot of his, it, it, for him, it's about grievance and how he's been wronged and, you know, loves providing his, his rabid base of supporters what they like to hear. So I guess I'll have to see it before I actually believe so that's the case. Uh, obviously, Donald Trump's performance, uh, as far as it being a lot more palatable last night than the first uh, debate, what about the content of what he was saying? Obviously, with the, whether it was the mute button or just each one uh, uh, keeping to their own side of the fence, so to speak, uh, what about the content that the president uh, had? 
Yeah, I thought um, his most persuasive argument was, you know, the kind of he had to run for president because he didn't like the Obama Biden administration. Yeah. Um, he painted Joe Biden as this forty-seven-year uh, political swamp, uh, you know, creature that has been in politics a long time, but you know, talked a big game, but really not got uh, as many things done as as he should have. And while simultaneously positioning himself as an outsider and somebody that's only been in politics for a short period of time, and you know, fighting against the um, you know kind of Washington uh, political establishment, and that's. That, that took him to power initially, and that's probably his best argument. I thought that he was pretty effective uh, with that last night. On, on immigration, you know, he, he held his own. Um, there's, there's certainly, uh, he's had his own, you know, conservative record there, but also point, pointed out some of the issues in the uh, in the Obama-Biden administration uh, about their, you know, deportation policy and things like that. So I thought he was pretty aggressive there. Not as not as good substantively on issues like coronavirus and healthcare. Those are two remain his two most vulnerable issues. Okay, let's talk about Biden's performance and what you thought uh, of of his last night. Um, pretty good, you know, similar to uh, Cleveland. Uh, very well prepared. He'd been off the campaign trail all week in preparation for this. Um, he did stay above the fray uh, when attacked his uh, his son, and you know didn't didn't have a breakdown or didn't uh, he didn't call the president a clown this time or tell him to shut up. I thought that was an improvement. Um, he was stronger at the beginning. I think part of that was because the topics were more favorable terrain, um, but he did fade as the night went on. And if the debate was any longer, that pro- it could have been problematic. I thought, you know, the thing that people are talking about the most now is him talking about transitioning to from oil and fossil fuels, which yeah. could be unpop- could be unpopular in a lot of key states. They're trying to clean it up the best they can. Both, you know, Kamala Harris is assisting in that, but uh, that was definitely um, the major error that he made, and uh, he just kind of faded a little bit. And it happens. <laughs> it was, you know, pretty late and. Uh, sometimes at the the end of debates, that's when you make your biggest mistakes on stage. It seems that Trump. It seemed to me that Trump was able to pivot more on 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 reactions. Exactly the the example that you brought up with with uh, his comments on the oil industry, and then immediately uh, the president seizing on that and saying, "Oh, here's news right here." Ba 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 ba. And Biden just didn't seem to have the stamina to come back to Trump. Is that the right? Is that the right strategy when you're debating the Donald? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you could try to get in the mud with them and, um, you know, go uh, blow for blow, but it really didn't work out in the first debate. He's likely, that's his terrain. He's likely going to have the advantage if that's the case. Um, so, so no, and, and, you know, Biden has the lead coming into this debate. He didn't need to win the debate. He just needed to um, not make a critical mistake, and, and he did that. So his expectations were lower. What he needed to do was much less, and, and he accomplished that. And so he was, you know, realistic and and knew he was just trying to basically run out the clock and uh, and have this final event with tens of millions of people conclude. And so now they're unlikely to be any other major things can impact the election in the next 11 days. So any minds changed here? I mean, I constantly hear that, you know, everybody's pretty set in stone on who, who, who they are going to vote for. What was accomplished last night? Yeah, I don't think many minds will be changed. Um, 50 million people have already voted. Uh, maybe at top 5% of people aren't decided. Um, there's just 11 days left. People know both candidates. Joe Biden's been all in, in public service for about 50 years, and Donald Trump, even though he's a new politician, has uh, been in public life for decades. People have uh, very strong views of the uh, Trump administration over the last four years, and so I don't think, uh, you know, if you were going to vote for someone that 
you likely strongly change your mind. But, you know, sometimes there's some low information voters that tune in and um, people, there are some still undecided voters in a really close election that at the margin that can still make a difference, especially in important states like uh, you know, Michigan and Wisconsin, places that were really close in the, in the 2016 election, but certainly not a, a major, major movement I wouldn't expect. We certainly know what the polls are saying at this point, uh, but uh, and many are predicting that uh, that Biden can go on to victory here. That being said, uh, we remember what happened back in 2016. Can you can you bet on the polls this election? I mean, nothing nothing certain, and so it is always possible that uh, they could be off again. Uh, I do think that pollsters tried to cor- tried to correct for some of that stuff by waiting now more by education and they use averages of polls. And so they're, they're in a better position, but they can still be off. You know, the concept of a, 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 tr- a shy Trump voter <laughs> may exist. And uh, we were very surprised. I mean, you know, Trump basically had a, a one in third chance or so of winning last time. And, you know, <laughs> that's, that's still a, a big chance. And there could be litigation over uh, some of the states and, you know, could get ugly about some of the early balloting and things. Some ballots could be dismissed for not being in the right envelope or uh, signature matches. And so we'll certainly be tuning in <laughs> for the next seven days to see what happens, because once you get surprised once, you certainly there's a lot of skepticism and you take things with a grain of salt. And uh, people have that as a, you know, a possibility in their mind. And it won't be such a, a large shock as it was initially. Aaron, I know you got to run. Thanks so much for the time. Aaron Call has been with us, Director of Debate at the University of Michigan and editor, co-author of Debating the Donald. Be well, Aaron. Thanks so much. Here's a small clip of uh, Joe Biden's opening statement. Anyone who's responsible for not taking control, in fact, not saying I'm, I take no responsibility initially, anyone who's responsible for that many deaths should not remain as president of the United States of America. What I would do is make sure we have everyone encouraged to wear a mask all the time. I would make sure we move in the direction of rapid testing, investing in rapid testing. I would make sure that we set up national standards as to how to open up schools and open up businesses so they can be safe. Uh, that is Joe Biden uh, in his opening remarks uh, last night, courtesy of ABC. Let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. Reggie, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Happy Friday. Yeah, back at you. Um, is this considered a win for Donald Trump just simply because he didn't do what he did in the first debate? I think you're going to find that both parties will say that it was a win for both of their candidates because they both were given an equal amount of time with very few interruptions to get their message across directly to their base and to those kind of six, seven, eight percent of Americans who are still considering themselves undecided. It was a uh, marked turn and difference for Donald Trump uh, when it came to his style of debate last night, far less aggressive than what we saw in the first round. Uh, There are some people that are criticizing the president for not being too aggressive, but I mean, this is kind of how politics plays out in the United States, get called out for being one way, and then when you change, you get called out for changing. Uh, Either one of them, any major gaffe. Uh, I can think of uh, Joe Biden's comments on the energy industry. Uh, He seems to be backtracking on that now. Well, I mean, look, Joe Biden's comments on the energy industry, especially when it comes to fracking, it's up for debate whether or not he was being factual when he said that he wouldn't ban fracking. In the past, he said that he would try to move away 
from uh, any kind of fossil fuel energy. Uh, and he, in the past, he has said that he wouldn't approve any new kind of permits to allow for fracking, especially on federal uh, on federal land. Uh, he also said that he would move away eventually from the oil industry. But that's not something that's going to take place, you know, in a matter of months or years. That's something that is a long term goal, not only for the United States, but for countries around the world to move towards renewable energy. And that's where, uh, where Joe Biden was essentially trying to get at last night. President Trump, uh, you know, on the other hand, was was kind of a factory of factual inaccuracies all night long. It's hard to choose, you know, which category, you know, the president said something that was incorrect in. Uh, his gaps were, were mostly uh, centered around the coronavirus pandemic, where he repeatedly pushed uh, incorrect information and blatantly false information that has realistically led to the deaths of 223,000 Americans. Um, you know, many uh, questioned uh, what the situation or, or what the role would be of the moderator when it comes to fact checking. Is it up to the other candidate to fact check um, uh, each other back and forth? Um, you know, again, it seemed that that Biden was trying to get his message across of what he will do uh, as opposed to the president, which he, he was just kind of telling stories. Yeah, look, fact checking on the fly can really kind of pigeonhole whatever you're trying to do on stage. And, you know, while Joe Biden tried to fact check some of the things, especially when he was in the, the position of being the vice president or in his, you know, decades in the Senate, he would try to fact check as, as he could without deterring from his own message of having to pivot backwards. Uh, the moderator, Kristen Welker, I mean, it was an excellent job by her, far different than what we saw uh, with Chris Wallace, but that was also kind of indicative of how the president had come out uh, roaring within the first couple of minutes, and that really sidelined both Biden and Wallace in that first debate. Uh, Kristen Welker was able to fact check in real time, uh, and this is the difference when you have a moderator like Chris Wallace, who is a kind of uh, a political speaking voice in Washington, whereas Kristen Welker travels with the president on a daily basis as part of the White House press corps. So when the president says something, she has the kind of the, the wherewithal and the ability to be able to fact check the president because she is with him on such a, a frequent and regular basis. And that's just something we didn't see in that first round. Uh, what about the performance of each individual? It, it appeared at times that uh, the, the president was more nimble and more able to pivot back and forth on issues where Biden seemed to struggle. Well, it depends on, on, on what message you were trying to pay attention to, and if you were the candidate on stage, what message you were trying to get across. Look, President Trump, in the 90 minutes that they were on stage, did nothing for the American public uh, in terms of forward-looking. He didn't give any policies uh, about foreign policy. There was no policy when it comes to the racial and social injustice in this country, and there was no policy going forward about the pandemic outside of quote-unquote, vaccines will be here shortly. Uh, and, and President Trump, you know, used his time on stage to kind of go over uh, the responses that he has given to not only the pandemic, but a number of policies and, and legislation that he's put through over the years that have been widely panned, but did not forward look that. Joe Biden was in a position of being able to look back on his history while also trying to put a plan out going forward. But also remember, Joe Biden is leading by double digits in all national polls and does hold uh, a lead within the margin of error in battleground states. So he played it safe last night. He did what he could to ensure that if the needle moved, it moved in a direction that would either benefit him or potentially harm Donald Trump. Obviously, a great shift uh, in gears for Donald Trump last night uh, compared to the first debate. Our, our last guest called it a course correction. Obviously, he listened to his staff, made the course correction uh, not to, to attack Biden the way he did in the first round. Will we see that same course correction continue through uh, the campaign since it did seem to, to help him? 
Well, I mean, it may have helped him uh, personally on stage last night, but even the public opinion polls that came out after the debate still put Joe Biden with a double-digit lead when it came to favorability numbers, and that really echoes what we see in the national polls around the country. Uh, and, and for what it's worth, the president's base doesn't like when the president is in a kind of subdued tone. They like to see him fired up. They like to see uh, the rhetoric and the bombast, especially when he's trying to go after Joe Biden. And look, the president himself tried to go after Joe Biden on these kind of unfounded uh, uh, allegations about Hunter Biden. Uh, and, and it was shut down, you know, almost every single time by Joe Biden, simply saying it's not true. Uh, but in that subdued tone, it didn't really work. So it, it's hard to see if this is going to be something that we have going forward. The president just a couple of minutes ago in the Oval Office uh, was talking uh, to the reporters uh, and he had uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on the phone asking him to try and make a slam against Joe Biden. So, I mean, look, the, it's, the, the political rhetoric here is going to continue no matter what the atmosphere is around the president. Yeah, you bring up a valid point. It may not be the president that his base really uh, likes. It's that more bombastic uh, character. What about the home stretch? Here we are. The debates are behind us. What happens now? They, all eyes are on the finish line right now for these two men. Joe Biden is back in Delaware. He's set to hold a campaign stump sometime in the next hour where he will focus on the coronavirus. Uh, but the, the campaigns are really focusing on the key battleground states right now. Uh, Donald Trump heads to Florida tonight where he'll cast an early ballot uh, and, and try to make a pitch because Florida's in play right now. And then tomorrow, Donald Trump heads to North Carolina for the third time in nine days understanding how important and crucial it is to try and remind Republicans that they're trailing in the polls right now and that he needs the support. North Carolina and, and Pennsylvania and Florida really will become the make-or-break state 11 days from now, and this is where all eyes are going to be. We're pointing out, too, Kamala Harris is in Atlanta, Georgia today. Georgia, a state once reliably red, very quickly turning purple as the dynamics and the demographics shift across the state. That is a state that at one time wasn't up for play. Democrats could make some serious gains in the Senate in Georgia, just 11 days from now. Reggie Giacchini has been with us, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News. Make sure you're watching tonight, uh, Global News 530 and 6, for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend. Thanks, you too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. China, they're an adversary. They're a competitor. They're a foe in many ways, but they're an adversary. Uh, I think what happened was disgraceful should never have happened should they should never have allowed this plague to get out of china and go throughout the world 188 countries should never have happened all right, you heard a uh, excerpt there of uh, the infamous 60 Minutes interview, which I guess uh, we'll see uh, uh, the actual broadcast version of uh, coming up this weekend. But uh, obviously, excerpts of it leaked uh, as uh, Donald Trump uh, cut the interview short. Uh, more on that, obviously, coming up uh, after the weekend. But uh, obviously, uh, the president has taken a direct aim at China uh, in regard to this virus and uh and obviously created some division just in which the attitude he uses to discuss this uh, in perhaps more uh, racist views as opposed to factual views. Uh, we all know the origin of the uh, of the virus. We all know uh, how we got to where we are. Uh, and now it's time for everybody to unite and uh, try to figure out what to do about it. Uh, that being said, uh, obviously, uh, the, the relationship with Canada and China has continued to deteriorate. Uh, now the U.S. is pressing Canada to hit China with sanctions over their uh, treatment uh, of the Uyghurs, as well as the president of China has issued indirect words uh, towards the U.S. saying that the people of China are not to be trifled with. This is, uh, I don't know, are they preparing for a war? Are they preparing? 
clamoring for uh, a change in attitude. Let's bring in Charles Burton, Senior Fellow, McDonald Laurier Institute. He is with us now. Charles, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Good afternoon. Yep, beautiful day here. I'm, oh, I can imagine what it's like. For October, isn't it? <laughs> Late yeah, October. it's beautiful. Absolutely. Uh, your thoughts on, uh, uh, first of all, let's talk about the changing attitude uh, in regard to China. Is this discussion shifting? Obviously, pre-COVID-19, Canada was accused of coddling China, not standing up. Uh, that position has, has obviously changed. We've heard the country speak out. Uh, we're now um, uh, being lauded by the U.S. for, for finally doing so. Uh, is this discussion shifting? Yes, I think it is, and I, you know, I think the reason the discussion is shifting is because of the behavior of the Chinese regime. You know, they just managed to get themselves into the UN Human Rights Council. Uh, you know, it's like sending the the fox into the chicken coop. Um, you know, our House of Commons committee has done a study of the situation of the Uyghurs and has determined. Uh, that it constitutes genocide. So, you know, this is the House of Commons Subcommittee on International Human Rights that says it constitutes genocide. And uh, even the lead article in this week's Economist um, has a picture of barbed wire and the assertion the persecution of Xinjiang's Muslims is a crime against humanity. So, you know, in the face of that, I think it becomes very hard for our government to carry on with, uh, well, you know, if we can sort out the Meng Wanzhou thing and get uh, Kovrigan's favor back to Canada, we can go back to negotiating free trade and working out an extradition treaty and, you know, opening up more Canadian resources to Chinese state ownership and so on, as we were doing before. So, you know, those, I think that, that moment has passed, and our government is well behind the curve in recognizing what the Canadian popular will is, and most people in Canada don't want us to enhance our engagement with a regime which is in which violates the norms of human rights um, trade and diplomacy in in such a, a flagrant and brutal way so you know yeah I think thing I think things are changing and I think it's really entirely the fault of of the the dictators in Beijing uh, Reuters is reporting, and, and this is a quote from the president, Chinese president, let the world know that the people of China are now organized and are not to be trifled with. What does he mean by organized? And were they not always? Well, uh, you know, it was a speech that uh, Party General Secretary Xi Jinping gave to commemorate the um, Korean War. And, you know, Chinese sent several hundred thousand uh, troops into battle against the U.N. forces led by the Americans there in the early 50s. Um, at that time, China's um, People's Liberation Army had just completed its defeat of the nationalists and taken over China for the Chinese Communist Party, and they were in top shape and, you know, acquitted themselves uh, very well in battle despite enormous casualties. So I think now China feels that, you know, the economy is stronger, that they are much more engaged in influence operations in countries throughout the world. They're developing um, an international military capability by acquiring um, port facilities in, in critical places around the world, and, and they don't want the Americans to interfere with their Belt and Road Initiative to restructure the global economy or to interfere with their, um, with their getting um, third-world dictatorships to 
to go pro-China in multilateral organizations and support China in its hegemonistic plans. So, you know, it is, uh, I mean, it, it, it's a threat. And, and the idea that we could be going to war over South China Sea or over Taiwan um, cannot be ruled out. And, you know, maybe China is feeling, on the one hand, they're strong enough to possibly prevail in such a conflict. And on the other hand, they have to do something to rally flagging domestic support for the regime because of, you know, as you said, the COVID-19 and, in general, the repressive nature of that government. So uh, these are troubled times. And, uh, and the, um, you know, the period before the U.S. election could provide China an opportunity to get into a, a political vacuum and further its interests in a way that, you know, we'll find very hostile and threatening. Is the Chinese president uh, preparing uh, preparing them for conflict, preparing them for war, or as you said, is this just to try to make it look like they're doing something? Uh, people not happy there with the leadership. Well, you know the um, the Taiwan um, KMT, the Nationalist Party, um, has recently said that they. Um, believe that Taiwan should have a seat on the UN. And I think that there is increasing um, sympathy for Taiwan as a vibrant democracy whose government, you know, reflects the democratic values very similar to our own. You know, it's a, it supports the, the rights of, um, of um, gays and, and supports uh, racial equality and is uh, is strong on environmental protection and protecting the um, the middle class, and so you know from that point of view, a lot of countries are saying, well, why is it that we won't allow Taiwan into the international community just because China says it's a province of China that you know is waiting for liberation from Beijing, and so I think that that there is worry in Beijing that this could could uh, take on a life of its own, and therefore it would be desirable for them to retake Taiwan by force. Um, and certainly within China, you know, most Chinese people in China, because of their socialization and the propaganda that they read coming out of um, the controlled um, press and media, uh, want their government to be strong on Taiwan. So if Mr. Xi was seen as being weak on Taiwan, that would weaken his position. So whether he means it or whether it's just, as you say, a gesture to try and solve domestic discontent remains to be seen. But I don't think we can rule out the possibility that some of the Taiwan military activity in that, uh, sorry, some of the mainland military activity in the Taiwan area is a preparation for actually going in, uh, which would be disastrous. Considering what uh, we've all seen happen in in Hong Kong, Taiwan cannot feel comfortable. No, I think that's right. Uh, Certainly, you know, there's no question that the Chinese government's promises with regard to um, some kind of federation where Taiwan and Hong Kong would be uh, nominally part of the People's Republic of China and rely on the People's Republic of China for foreign affairs and defense, but would be allowed to maintain um, the democratic freedoms that they have there, the freedom of assembly, the freedom of of, uh, expression, the ability to elect their own local leaders has been shown to be a crock. You know, they they violated absolutely their commitment made to the people of Hong Kong when Hong Kong was transferred from the British sovereignty as a sovereign as a colony over to the mainland, 
And, of course, that means that any promises they've ever made to Taiwan in the past to maintain the same thing, one country, two systems, has been uh, thoroughly discredited. So it does leave um, it does leave Taiwan in a position of how do we establish our legitimacy internationally to protect ourselves from arbitrary invasion by by mainland China. Are can is Canada and the United States on the same page? Is uh, are are they on the same page on this? Uh, obviously, article in the Globe and Mail: U.S. encourages Canada to hit China with sanctions over the Uyghurs. Is this is are we on the same page with this now? No, we aren't, and Canada very much lags behind um, all of our like-minded allies. Is that because of the issue at hand, or is that because of we have two different uh, you know, stripes of government in, the, in Canada and the United States? I think that there is a lot more penetration of Chinese interests into our system. You know, in, in important Canadian businesses or have lucrative um, relationships with Chinese communist right. networks and they they tell our government that you know don't do this don't do that if it gets the Chinese embassy upset will you know they'll transfer our contracts to another country and you know it's important to build Canadian prosperity through trade with China I mean the thing is that our total external trade that goes to the People's Republic of China is just under four percent of our total external trade it's not that much but if you hear the government say it, you know, China is the key to our future prosperity. And I think that's really a justification for maintaining regimes that give tacit consent to, you know, what, our, what a parliamentary committee says constitutes genocide and the, and the economists that are crimes against humanity in all sorts of areas. So um, uh, I, I do have a lot of concern about this. And you know that parliamentary committee has made recommendations to the government um, and defining what's going on in in that part of China's genocide triggers a lot of obligations on the part of Canada in terms of our commitment to the UN Convention on Genocide. But um, you know the government does not necessarily have to follow the um, recommendations of a parliamentary committee, and I'm inclined to think that we're going to continue with our you know weak. Uh, and, you know, dare I say, hypocritical response, and that any China reset that our government is promising before the end of the year um, may not be, uh, you know, very much to write home about beyond rhetoric. And whether that will ever happen, you know, is very much in question in the sense that the Huawei decision was committed to have been made before the last election, and we're not seeing any sign of it coming up anytime soon. Um, during, um, be, because of what we've seen with the pandemic and, and COVID-19 and such, and we, and we certainly know the history and, and where it came from and, and such, uh, should, is China missing an opportunity here for goodwill, considering, uh, uh, their role in this, in, in this pandemic? Is China missing an opportunity to help others and at least make it look like uh, they're on our side, or at least friends with the rest of the world on this. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if the Chinese government had agreed to the idea of, of us sending in a neutral international team to try and figure out how this um, pandemic originated and, you know, to give us more insight into the nature of this so that we can uh, work more effectively to counter it, that would have been good. But, you know, when you have the Chinese ambassador um, threatening the safety and uh, and health of of 300,000 Canadians in Hong Kong 
Um, and then when he was given an opportunity to walk back that implied threat in his statement, he refuses to do so. You're not engendering a lot of goodwill there. In other words, you know, menacing us is not going to uh, uh, is not going to get us to to to, to feel that you're playing nicer. Um, why China is uh, thinking that they can intimidate Canada and bend us to their will is, uh, I think, um, a mystery because, uh, you know, Canadians may be willing to make some compromises to make money off the Chinese market, but I think there are some lines that we won't cross, and an ambassador that, that menaces um, the safety and health of Canadians to achieve a Chinese political end, which is that Canada should not be giving refugee status to democracy activists in Hong Kong, is uh, just beyond the pale and completely unacceptable, and we ought to respond to it in a meaningful way. And up to now, you know, we've only responded with harsh words and calling the ambassador in for a talk about, you know, how we really shouldn't say things like that anymore. Well, no. Uh, does it matter who is in the White House, Donald Trump or Joe Biden? Does that change this discussion in any way after November 3rd? Well, I watched the debate uh, between Mr. Trump and Mr. Biden last night, and uh, unlike the previous debate, I was able to actually understand some of it hmm. because, you know, they weren't talking over each other thanks to a mute switch on the microphone. But uh, Mr. Biden um, talked about China, and, you know, he, like Mr. Trump, feel that we can no longer tolerate China's gross violations of the norms of the international rules-based order. But Mr. Biden is much more interested in working with allies together. He said that, you know, the United States is only 25% of the global economy. The United States needs to ally with like-minded countries to try and come up with a common front to get China into compliance with norms of fairness and reciprocity and justice. And so, unlike Mr. Trump, who clearly wants to do this mano a mano with with the Chinese dictator, I think with Mr. Biden we might see a return to the use of multilateralism and and collective action, and that uh, I hope will be something that whoever the Canadian government is uh, next year will will respond to, because I think it's our only salvation to maintain our liberal order. I don't want to live in a in a in a world that's dominated by an authoritarian dictatorial regime with no respect for the rights of the individual. And it's probably not helping that since the beginning of his presidency, although Donald Trump certainly is very firm on China, uh, it seems the first thing he did once in office was tick off all his allies, so there is no sort of united front on this, which is really what's needed. Uh, you know, Otherwise, China's dividing and conquering, no? Yes, I agree. I think that, I mean, for one thing, people obviously don't like dealing with Mr. Trump. Um, you know, he's uh, he's uh, often dishonest and unpredictable and doesn't maintain commitments. Um, on the other hand, there is the just the geostrategic necessity to be collaborating with the United States if we want to do anything um, worthwhile. So, uh, you know, if Mr. Trump continues in office, then I think that we've got to set aside his personal characteristics, um, you know, um, the fact that he he, he says uh, very ugly things about racial minorities and women, uh, we have to set aside and look at Canadian interests and figure out a way to collaborate with the U.S. government 
which of course is not just Mr. Trump, but you know it's a system that has a lot of checks and balances, so that we can find elements in there that that we were able to to collaborate with in our interests. But I think in general, most Canadians would be happier if we had Joe Biden as the president because he has a reputation for integrity and uh, you know clearly a a strong command of issues and and someone who will not arbitrarily change his mind on important international affairs. So, you know, we'll see what happens uh, after June, January 20th next year. Uh, we certainly know uh, Donald uh, Trump's uh, comments on China and in his stance on China, but when he brings in that racial element, does it discredit this whole discussion? Um, uh, are people looking at this and thinking, well, if Donald Trump's on that side, I'm on the other side? Well, I think that's our natural inclination. I mean, you know, he's certainly not someone that I would want to have a beer with on St. Paul Street in St. Catharines, or as <laughs> Joe Biden, I, you know, we could come up with, with something to have a pleasant evening. But, you know, we have to deal with the U.S. government as it is, and we have to look at Canadian interests and, and um, set aside those things that that cause us to feel that, you know, he's just not someone that we can particularly like. But, um, but you know, and, and of course he has people working in his in his government that that we have got productive relationships with. Um, but in general, I think um, you know Joe Biden is someone who Canadians can warm to much more readily than to than to Donald Trump on all sorts of levels. And certainly, you know, he's a, a seems to be a very likable gentleman. Um, frankly, I'm a little concerned about his age, but mm. you know, I. Uh, I have no vote in the United States, so I'm just going to watch and see what happens. Yeah, it certainly has uh, become a uh, a discussion of character rather than policy. Uh, Charles Burton has been with a senior fellow, McDonald Laurier Institute. Charles, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Great. Have a good weekend, Scott. You too. All right. It is Friday. You know what that means at this time? Uh, well, we've started doing this uh, in the middle of uh, the pandemic. A message of hope from the Reverend Jim Carrier, Good Shepherd Church down in St. Catharines, just to get us through the weekend. Jimmy, how you doing? Doing all right, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. Ted Michaels has a Philadelphia Flyer mask. <laughs> <laughs> Which but it's a goalie mask. All it is is a goalie mask, and there's cotton shoved in the mouth. It's like an old, it's like an old Jacques Plant mask, except oh. the little holy's got cotton stuffed in there, and you know maybe some duct tape. I'm thinking, Ted, that's not working. That's not legit. I miss anyway. that so much. Yeah, he he. Well, he, you know, he was doing the weather, and we noticed he was a bit muffled. He did the weather with his mask on. Oh, all right. Well, there you go. Right. Yeah, uh, apparently, apparently, there's. <laughs> There's some spray. There's some spray in the weather this weekend. All right. Uh, your thoughts. Yes, he was speaking moistly. Uh, all of a sudden, this is turning into uh, what we used to talk about uh, when the news was on, as opposed to what is actually on the air. Uh, your thoughts on where we are right now. Uh, you know, a very tumultuous time uh, this week. Uh, Canadians almost went uh, to an election. Uh, we see the bombastic debates down in the U.S. that uh, that have been going on. Has this been a tough week, do you think, for Canadians? Uh, I think it has been uh, a little well. Well, a little stressful and tense for sure. Um, I don't think that, uh, I think most of us did not want 
Siegel on election right now. No. So I'm kind of thankful that that didn't, uh, that didn't come to fruition. Uh, but it's still, you know, with a minority government, it's still, it's still up in the air and it's still a possibility. So that's, that's something that we need to, to maybe, to maybe think about. Uh, but I think it has been a tough week overall. The numbers are, are, are not the best that we've had, uh, for a lot of, uh, a lot of provinces. It, it hasn't been on the decline at all. It's either been stable or, or for the most part on the rise. And I was just, uh, what I was doing the other afternoon just before I called you is, um, is I'm putting together what we call our electionary, which, are, which is our schedule. And, uh, and this next page of schedule takes us to, uh, March 14th, 2021, which will be, a year mm. since uh, since mm. the whole COVID thing, and well, since we stopped uh, having services on, on on a regular Sunday, and so we still have Christmas coming, uh, Halloween is coming, so there are some some good signs that life is is continuing. Things are going on. We're still planning for the future. We're still planning ahead, and I think that that's important to do for people uh, not to, not to disconnect from the present and not to disconnect from the future. But that continue to make to make your plans for Christmas, adjust them uh, as necessary. But 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 these celebrations, Halloween and Christmas, they're all going to come, and they'll be a little different. But they'll come, and we'll 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 share those experiences together. It's amazing how our attitudes have changed since this first started. I remember when this, like, I, I could not believe the day my boss said, "Oh, you're working from home in three days." Like, what? That ain't gonna happen. And of course, it did. And then you think, "Well, this is gonna be this is gonna be happening for a couple of weeks, and then we're gonna be through it." And then obviously, you're in it for the long haul. Then you come out of the first wave, the end of the summer. Things were looking pretty good. People are getting a little bit more optimistic. And then the second wave hits. You really start to feel the fatigue. You can see how that's bothering people. Pretty much since the beginning of september although now i'm thinking maybe the fatigue has gone to giddiness but now we realize or slowly coming to realize that this is the norm for the next uh you, you know i mean whether we're in the sixth inning or the seventh inning or what um you know we, we we've still got a bit of play here so I'm, I'm starting to notice people go beyond the fatigue and just go whatever <laughs> get us yeah, through it yeah well, we have to be careful too that, that, you know, I'm, I'm fatigued as well. I mean, I was just thinking about that last week that I'm really, you know, this is different. I've been working twice as hard as I, as I would on a normal, on a normal week. And I'm really getting, get, getting fatigued about that. But, but, but A, we can't become complacent. I mean, we, we need to stick with, uh, with washing our hands and listening to the health authorities and stuff. But we also don't want to be disconnected. We don't want to kind of retreat now and go, well, this is going to go on forever. So let's, but let me just shut down for you know until this is over. We need to continue to connect with one another. Use use the internet. That can go that can go two ways. You can get on the internet and disconnect from everybody, or you can get on the internet and connect with people um, mm. that you love and that you know. So so I think it's important that we continue to think outwardly. We continue continue to think about one another. That if you're fatigued, your neighbor is fatigued, your friend is fatigued, your families are fatigued and that we're in this together. And so we need to do these special things, make these special connections in order to help us uh, through this. Well said. Another message of hope from the Reverend Jim Carrier, Good Shepherd, uh, Good Shepherd Church down in St. Catharines. And don't forget to check out the Reverend Jim's uh, Facebook page as well. Jim, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Say hi to Jude and the kids. Thank, thank you, Scott. Get out in the sunshine. It's a beautiful day today. Oh, it's amazing out there. Thank you, Jim. Be well. 
The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.